0: This week on the show, we tell you tales from a core file. We have the Lenovo X260 BIOS update procedure with OpenBSD for you. We tell you a bit about the problem of Unix IO8 and multi-CPU machines. We have a tutorial about a Hugo workflow using FreeBSD jails, Caddy, and RESTIC. We talk a little bit about extending NetBSD 7 branch support, a tale of two hypervisor bugs, and more in this week's episode of BSD. Now. ESD Now, episode 346, Core File Tales, recorded for the 15th of April, 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Ju. Welcome back. Uh, some people are in their castles of toilet paper. Some people are not, because they're not hoarders. Uh, wherever you might find us, hope you are well and uh, staying safe this way. Uh, We have headlines this week, as well as a packed episode for you. Uh, The headlines this week start with Tales from a Core File. Lessons from the Unix Standard IO ABI 40 years later.
1: Uh, So this is from uh, noted Illumos developer uh, Robert Mustachi. And he says, on the side, I've been wrapping up some improvements to the classic Unix Standard IO library in Illumos. Uh, Standard IO contains the classic functions like fopen, printf, and the security nightmare get s. While working on support for fmemopen and friends, I got reacquainted. have uh, reacquainted myself with some of the joys of the standard I/O library and its history from seventh edition Unix. With that, a mindless dive into this history and some mistakes not to repeat. While this is written from the perspective of the C programming language, aspects of this apply to all other languages. So first, APIs or sorry, APIs and ABIs. Before we dive into discussions of the standard IO ABI, let's first talk about APIs and ABIs. In programming, many people talk about APIs. APIs define how a program can call into some other piece of code. In C, APIs are often contained in header files and these are documented in manual pages. For example, here are some C API declarations, you know, uh, extern int fstat which takes uh you know, an int And returns a struct stat or whatever, or uh, fputc takes an int and uh, a file pointer. The API names a function uh, and describes the type of the parameters and the return value of the function. These declarations and dependent headers are all that one needs to write a C program. While the API is enough to write a program, when the compiler and linker get to work and you actually run your program, you need to rely on something else the ABI. The Application Binary Interface uh, describes a lot of aspects of the program that are required to have it run. For example, when you call into libc, where are the arguments found? Are they found on the stack? Are they found in registers? The ABI also describes certain things like how many bytes uh, an int is and how should one lay out a structure with padding and so on. Now, a large amount of ABI is standardized in different documents for a given platform. For example, many Unix-based systems follow the System 5 ABI. This ABI uh, defined many aspects of systems such as ELF, the executable and linkable format, and dynamic linking. Portions of the ABI were relegated to processor-specific parts. These describe the use of registers, the alignment of types, and more. Some of the more interesting examples are the AMD64 System V PS ABI or the RISC-V PS ABI, or is a procedure call standard for the ARM 64-bit platform. Um, these documents don't describe everything one needs. For example, while Linux, Illumos, and various BSDs all use the same AMD64 calling convention and ELF-based binaries and libraries, there are many things that each system uniquely defines. For example, let's compare struct stat between Illumos and OpenBSD. I've placed the two side by side, though I'm trimming out a bunch of the preprocessor macros and so on. So on a Lumos, you have um, the device and then the inode number, then the mode, the number of links, UID, GID, etc. Whereas on OpenBSD, the mode comes first, then the device, the inode, the number of links, UID, GID, etc. Uh, so they just change the order of the first three arguments around. <laughs> Um, and then there's a couple other differences as well, including the uh, OpenBSD has the concept of flags, and FreeBSD uh, similar, whereas Lumos does not. OpenBSD also has a birth time for a file as well. So he uh, says, while there are a number of members which have the same types, the layout of these are such uh, that the order of the members is rather different. There's nothing wrong with that. However, it's uh, pieces like this that are part of each system's ABI. While these differences may uh, may seem a bit mundane at first, uh, when you start to go further afield from Unix family systems and start, you know, to contrast with Windows, the differences are much larger. For example, the long data type is 64-bit, or uh, long data type on 64-bit Windows is a 32-bit value, whereas it's a 64-bit value on the Unix family. You know, so the variable type... Can mean something different depending on the platform Uh, so then we get into backwards compatibility you might reasonably ask why do we care about the abis well one of the areas where abis are quite important is in backwards compatibility in this case backwards compatibility refers to the ability for today's systems to run software that was compiled in the past if that future system can run the older programs it is considered to be backwards compatible A common example is how you can play your gamecube games on the nintendo wii Uh, different systems value backwards compatibility in different ways windows is famed and cursed for its backwards compatibility one can run old software that targeted windows 95 on windows 10. apple takes a different view entirely and they generally drop compatibility after two or three major releases linus torvalds long instilled the rule of not breaking user space in the linux kernel which is a similar edict about backwards compatibility for user applications. The Linux kernel doesn't have a stable API or ABI for drivers. In Illumos, we generally value maintaining a stable ABI over time so that way older software will continue to work. Maintaining this backwards compatibility does come with some costs and sometimes requires that you put forth more effort to deal with it. However, if every major update meant you had to rebuild all the software for your operating system, you can see how frustrating that would be. The Lumos isn't the only system with this property. A lot of other software is also known for valuing backwards compatibility. A notable example is the GNU libc. Uh, You might ask what does all this talk of backwards compatibility have to do with this ABI? The two are pretty closely related. Uh, Take the struct stat example above. When a C program is compiled, the offsets of the members of a struct become party to the generated library or binary. If a new member were inserted in the middle of the struct, that would change the offsets of all the subsequent members and would mean the older program would access the wrong item. The struct stat also shows another challenge with the ABI. If you look at the way that a program often uses it, it looks something like this. So they have a a void function called foo that takes a path and then they call stat on that path and put the result into a struct stat. Then they print out that struct stat.st mode, and that will be the permissions on that file. Here the application is declared the stat struct on the stack. This means that the size of it is known at compile time and used. If we increase the size of the structure, we run a program compiled using the older uh, binary um, with the smaller size of the structure, the stack call would write beyond the space allocated Uh, on the structure on the stack and overwrite the next variable and cause all kinds of havoc. With all this in mind, there's a lot we can learn from standard IO and in particular what not to do. So the uh, standard IO was introduced in the seventh edition of Unix. Uh, Many aspects of this original version of standard IO are the same today. Uh, The files, um, pointers, and fopen, getc, putc, and even standard in, standard out, and standard error were all there. Even that, uh, the now common header file stdio.h was introduced originally. Uh, and then, uh, from there, it soon entered into the lands of BSD. The second BSD release in 1979 actually contained its own implementation of a small part of standard I/O. However, uh, by the time BSD 2.9, if not earlier, it ended up with a version of standard I/O that looked pretty similar to what was in seventh edition. Eventually, the folks at Berkeley wrote their own version of it. And you can see that most clearly in the 4.4 BSD version. Aluminous, due to its heritage from Solaris, was a combination of BSD and System 5 Release 4. Um, An interesting side effect of this is that we can track most of the implementation back to the original uh, System 5 Release 4 release. Uh, In fact, you can even see all the original AT&T copyrights in the files. (laughs) Many parts of the code look similar to the corresponding version in 7th edition. Many of the file names are even the same. Uh, As a result of this particular bit of history, a lot of the AVI decisions that were made in 7th edition were carried into SVR4 and made their way into Solaris. If we look at some of the decisions with a modern eye, they're all things that make it much harder to extend standard I.O. without breaking that AVI. So at the heart of standard I.O. is the file structure. Um, We'll look at a portion of standard I.O.H. from 7th edition Unix. And we can see that it finds the buffer size is 512 bytes and the number of files as 20. And then you have your uh, a struct iobuf that has uh, a char pointer called underscore PTR, meaning a pointer. Then a count, the base, the flags, and the file. And that's an array of the number of files of that, which is 20. Uh, so it says, well, here we go. The struct underscore io buff is what everyone knows and loves as the file structure. A lot of this structure is still with us today. If you look at different versions of the structure, you'll see the same members. The pointer, counter, and base members are used to help implement the buffer policy. Uh, The flag member is how the structure keeps track of knowing if it's open for read or write, or if you've hit the end of the file or an error or whatever. The underscore file member is particularly interesting. Uh, This represented the file descriptor that was backed by the file structure. If you uh, consider a char was either a signed or unsigned byte value, this limited you to file descriptors 0 through 127 or 0 to 255. Most folks could quite reasonably have more than 256 file descriptors open. If you're writing a tool like grep, this might not be true, but if you're writing a network application and there's a file descriptor per connection, then having more than 256 connections seems quite common. So back in 7th edition Unix, the file structure... Uh, were statically allocated. There was no dynamic allocation for them. And if we look at the bit above, we'll see that we could have uh, 20 different file structures. In that world, having a file descriptor limit probably made a lot more sense than when this was first written uh, before there was networking and so on. Unfortunately, the fact that these structures and the array uh, were declared this way leaked into many different applications. So let's take a look at the 4.4 version of this structure. Um, which is a bit bigger. Um, so struct underbar underbar s file uh, contains an unsigned char for the pointer, then uh, an integer for read space left for getC, and then another one for how much space is left to write with, the flags, uh, the file number, uh, so the file descriptor, then a struct s buff, which is the buffer itself, uh, and then the buffer size. Mm-hmm. Then it has a bunch of uh, pointers to the actual close, read, seek, and write functions that we used on this type of file, Uh, several buffers for long sequences of (laughs) unget. see, and a whole bunch more stuff. And so while it's different, many things are still the same. The flags and file descriptors grew to a short variable, uh, or variable type, uh, which let you have a bit more than, you know, 127 files open. But everything is still public, which means the layout of the structure is part of the API. This all leads to a few critical issues that are uh, all intertwined. The first being the lack of uh, opacity. If we look at the APIs that exist around standard I.O., all of them take a pointer to uh, this file structure. This is a pointer to the file structure. Uh, This means that the use of the APIs doesn't actually require someone to know The size of that structure even from the beginning the apis uh, that give you access uh, in standard io like fopen and fdopen uh, require a file pointer and then standard in standard out and standard error all refer to a specific file pointer all of this tells us that the consumer didn't actually need to know the layout of that structure if you have a consumer where you don't actually know the layout of a structure then we call that an opaque structure Uh, It's just a pointer, and you don't necessarily know how the data inside that is stored. There are a couple implications to this. Most notably, it means that an application cannot allocate the structure itself. It must ask the library to do that, and that you need to use functions to access the members of the functions. Uh, While in the early days of Unix, things like binary compatibility were not top of mind, by the 90s, most systems started caring about backwards compatibility, and it was a bit too late. An existing body of software... Uh, was using all of these fields directly. Many of the things that we know of as functions that were standardized in C89, such as getc and fileno, uh, actually were macros and just dereferenced the structure member. Uh, so an example from version seven Unix's standardio.h is you know fileno just reached into that uh, struct file and got the underbar file uh, member. Whereas if we had made that structure opaque, um, it would mean the programs wouldn't, as part of the API, wouldn't have to know that. They would just call a function, and it would get the right part. And that would allow that structure to have changed without programs compiled to use it needing to be updated. And that would have probably been much better. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. Uh, And then they also talk about member sizing and padding and arrays and how those don't always work out well with AVIs. And then so a couple of lessons here near the end, it says to summarize, if you're working on something where backwards compatibility is important, here are some lessons that we can take from standard IO. Keep your structures opaque if you can. Folks can and will encode public things even if uh, you later make them private. You know, uh, OpenSSL uh, made this change as part of I think, 1.1. And yes, we saw lots of programs that were Accessing private parts of the structures and had to be replaced with functions that could do it, so that when OpenSSL changes how they lay out the data in their structures, the code in the programs that use it don't need to change. Uh, if your structure will be public, think carefully about sizing the members, because you don't want to run out. You know, uh FreeBSD had lots of fun during the upgrade to FreeBSD 12 with the fact that our uh, struct stat had to change because the size of an inode was going from 32-bit to 64-bit to allow you to have more than 4 million files in the same file system, which you know, people were citing to do. Uh, and so you know, that was a big breaking change that caused problems in a bunch of places, especially certain programming languages like Rust and JRuby, where they were directly accessing that struct and compiling in their knowledge of it as part of the ABI, rather than uh, using you know, libc to do it and, and having it be opaque. Mm. Uh, so he says make sure to add room for expansion in public structures uh you know parts of the abi in freebsd for the network stack and so on always have these padding members near the end so that over time like say between freebsd 12.0 and 12.3 when it comes out we can add a member to a struct by using up some of that padding uh, and won't have changed the size of the structure during the abi stability of freebsd 12. Uh, and of course think twice before exposing an array to to the abi because you will probably regret it i mean
0: students nowadays are like well then i just make the data structure as big as possible and so no one will run into any kind of limits there but that also increases the size of the actual objects from that data structure and Yes.
1: Remember, you might, you might have millions of these allocated at once.
0: Yeah. Just having one member in the array while you have a, like a, a billion or how, how many other members is just a lot of wasted space. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, it's definitely a good reading. So we, uh, I would say you should definitely read the whole thing if you have time in our show notes. And uh, yeah, l- learn the lessons from the 40 years of ABIs in the Unix Standard I.O. I love the little quip at the very end.
1: He says, "Still, I find it helpful to remember that Roger Faulkner, a man who had to suffer with more of this than anyone else, was fond of saying that code came from New Jersey."
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's difficult to to kind of imagine how long your software will live. Well,
1: yes, I'm sure when they made that struct with that, you know, where you could only have two hundred fifty five files open, that they were not expecting that you know, people would have files that were tens of gigabytes in size or terabytes in size. And, <laughs> and that a
0: software would live that long.
1: Yeah. Well, even, you know, when, if you're Kirk and you're writing UFS, are you really thinking that somebody's going to someday try to put 4 million files in one file system?
0: Mm, yeah, that's just unimaginable. <laughs> okay. Um, a little bit more practical things in our next item is updating the Lenovo X260 BIOS with OpenBSD. So, this is a, a fairly straightforward tutorial. Uh, starts off uh, with uh, my X260 only runs OpenBSD and has no CD driver, but I still need to upgrade its BIOS from time to time. And this is possible using the ISO BIOS image. First of all, you need to download the BIOS update bootable CD from the Lenovo support website. Uh, then you need to install the Torito utility with uh, do as package underscore add getLterito then you extract the bootable image uh, from the iso file it's another do as uh, from get dash lowercase o the bios.img the image file two downloads and then the name dot uh, iso right so it's writing out bios.img by extracting it
1: from that iso
0: right yeah it's not a uh, source and target it's both uh one extracting from the other okay <laughs> So you can see the output there uh, you, that the image has been written to the file download slash bios.img. And this is what we're going to use next. The next command where we will copy the boot image onto a USB stick uh, with a dos with a DD. Be careful with DDs, with the IF and OF, not to overwrite any other important parts of your disk. Yes. And make sure you write it out to the correct disk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you take the uh, uh, bios.img as the input file. And the output file should be your uh, destination CD or USB stick, more like. And once that is done, you reboot the system, hit enter on the logo screen, and F12 to get the boot menu uh, and select the USB stick there. Then follow the wizard and you're done. When you're back in OpenBSD, you can then check that the BIOS is now updated with a call to demessage and then uh, grab for the BIOS and uh, maybe a version string or something. And then you should get uh, the one that is in the... Uh, updated, uh, well, in the update utility file from the website. Nice yeah, straightforward. Not too difficult, of course. There's always a risk. Yes, if you lose power during the update, and yeah, uh, things might go wrong. But so far, so good. This is fairly straightforward and easy to do. Time for the news roundup this week. We have the problem of Unix I/O 8 and multi-CPU machines for you.
1: Uh, so this is from Chris Seiberman. And he says, various Unixes have had an IO weight uh, statistic for a long time now, although he can't seem to find it in BSD anywhere and thinks it might have come from system five. The traditional and standard definition of IO is that it's the amount of time the system was idle, but had at least one process waiting on disk IO. Rather than count the time as idle, as you would if you had a three-way division of CPU time between user system and idle. Some Unixes evolved to count this as a new category or io To his surprise, IO-8 doesn't appear to be in BSD at all. They stick with the user system idle and nice divisions of system times. IO-8 is in Linux and Solaris slash Illumos and appears to be in HPUX, AIX, as well as some other, you know, the others that he found with just doing man page checks. This traditional definition makes easy and straightforward sense in a uniprocessor machine where the system cannot be simultaneously idle waiting for a process to finish IO and running a process. But these days, basically all systems are uh, multi-CPU or symmetric multiprocessing ones. And in a multi-CPU world, it's not obvious how you should define IO wait because there's no longer a strict binary division between running things and stopped waiting for IO. In a multi-CPU system, some but not all CPUs can be busy running code while some processes are blocked on I/O. If these processes had I/O that completed immediately, they could run on that currently idle CPU. But at the same time, the system is doing some work instead of being entirely stalled waiting on that I/O, of which is the way I/O wait works on a uniprocessor system. There are all sorts of plausible answers uh, Unix could adopt for the meaning of I/O wait on a multi CPU system, ranging from the simple to the complex to the ad hoc. Um, But no matter what Unix does, it needs to come up with some answer and ideally document that answer. There are no guarantees that two different Unixes have picked the same answer. If you're going to use io8 uh, to measure anything, you might want to try to figure out what it is that it means. Is this picking the answer gets more complicated if your Unix wants io8 to be a per CPU thing? like user system and idle time often are, because normally waiting for IO is not naturally associated with any particular CPU. Illumos appears to not consider IO8 to be a per CPU thing, per a little mention in the mpstat man page, but does have the idea of IO8 in general from the SAR man page. It's well, Another thing that often catches people out as a difference between BSD and Linux is in Linux, that IO8 time is included in the load average. And on FreeBSD, there is no such concept, so it's not. And that means that the, the load average on Linux can be really high because the CPU is really busy or because the disk is really busy. Whereas how busy your disks are doesn't impact the load average on FreeBSD. Other than, you know, maybe your disk controller is using some more CPU or whatever.
0: Yeah, so you cannot directly compare the two from Linux and the BSDs. Uh, there's uh, some other th- uh, blog posts, apparently, by Chris Seiberman at the bottom about IO8 and IO8 statistics, if you want to read those as well. Uh, but yeah, it's a good uh, way of knowing that these things are, are there, they're happening, but the systems are uh, r- representing it in a different way. Okay. The next item we have is a self hosted Hugo workflow using FreeBSD Jails, Caddy, Arrestic, and more. Uh, this is uh, on Jared Wolf's blog, I'm fairly sure it is. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Jared writes After hosting with Netlify for a few years, I decided to head back to self hosting. There's a few reasons for that, but the main reasoning was that I had more control over how things worked. So in this post, I'll show you my workflow for deploying my Hugo-generated website, this one. Uh, instead of using what most people would go for, I'll be doing all this using a FreeBSD jails-based server. Plus, I'll show you some tricks I've learned over the years on bulk image resizing and more. So there's a, uh, it's a well-written uh, article with a couple of uh, screenshots and, of course, uh, the code that comes with it. Uh, in the certain places where it's needed. So it starts off with where to host. Well, this is basically uh, you want to host your own service. You'll need a server. That's where a VPS provider like DigitalOcean or Vulture comes in. Uh, I've been a fan, he writes, and have used DigitalOcean for a while now. After discovering Vulture, though, I've been experimenting with their platform. For this post, instructions will apply to Vulture only. Okay, I'm fairly sure you can uh, adapt in the places where it's Vulture-specific. Yes, it's, you know,
1: pick a location, pick a size, click deploy, and now you have a FreeBSD (laughs) machine.
0: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Let's start. Um, Let's go through this real quickly. You choose the FreeBSD image. You click on that. You make it work, as Alan mentioned, and um, hit the deploy button, and it should appear in the cloud. Then you set up your FreeBSD server with Bastille. Uh, This is basically... um, Bastille's uh, a jail manager, basically. Yeah. Um, so we're going basically, you're, you set up the box, you can SSH into it, and now you're going into the actual uh, configuration. Uh, here we uh, start with a few important bits using package. Uh, you do package install RESTIC, RSYNC, and Bust-T. Uh We're using RESTIC for backups, RSYNC for transferring files, and Bustee for uh, the jail setup. Uh, there's a bit of section for pf.conf for, um, you know, blocking things and letting things through the firewall this is all uh, fairly straightforward and not part of this how-to too much uh, uh you of course you enable the pf and start the service uh, then you set up the bastille networking interfaces uh this is lo1 here for uh, the loop back into the jail well they're
1: renaming it to Bastille zero so you can tell what it's for right so that's a more uh
0: recognizable name then you start uh, Bastille service as well. And uh, ah, you create a, a caddy. <laughs> Bastille, create caddy, 12.1 stable with an IP address of choice. And then Bastille, start caddy. i never used caddy before, so I'm kind of excited what it is. Uh, then install caddy. Which, oh, you need to manually fetch it? Or why is that necessary? There's no port yet or what? Uh, for whatever reason, you fetch it, uh, you get... Then to extract that one and copy the locations, uh, uh, copy that uh, those files to use a local bin, and then create a caddy user to run this on with user bin uh, as bin no login as login so that this is just a daemon, and then you do package caddy install ca root nss to get the certificates here. Okay, that's all you need to initialize except the prompts. Once you're done there, we'll move on to the next step. Uh, once the install is complete, you can configure Caddy to start on boot. Ah, they're creating their own rc.d script because that's not uh, there's no port a- apparently, so you have to do this yourself. Uh, that's provided by the post. You can just uh, copy and paste this one. Yes, you n- make it executable, of course, and then run this. Next, you need a Caddy file. Here's an example of one. You say basically TLS uh, hello at jaredwolf.com in this case. Uh, You you define a log location and the root where this uh, web directory should be shared, gzip and log standard error. Okay. Yeah. The options are all explained. And yeah, further down the list here is after you edited the caddy file, you copy the caddy file.conf to use a local ETC and you should now redirect your DNS to the server IP. That way caddy can uh, generate and fetch the correct certificates then start caddy itself with baste service caddy caddy start. Is that an extra caddy there? Ah, oh, no. One is the jail. One is the service. Okay,
1: <laughs> it's kind of confusing for a tutorial. Maybe you should have named it Caddy Jail.
0: Mm. <laughs> but okay, we got it.
1: Um, for people like me who are confused, Caddy is the name of the web server for the Go community, apparently. Oh,
0: I see. Okay,
1: so it's it's the HTTPD that they're wanting to use. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, now that we have KD up and running, it's time to copy our Hugo generated assets over using rsync or SCP, whatever you want to use. Uh, we're off to the next step make building and deploying easy. Ah, I mentioned you spend a lot of time or a ton of time programming C code, and that means I spend tons of time using make files. Uh, So for many make is the bane of our existence for building and deploying make, makes it easy to create reusable recipes. That way, you know, you can deploy it with confidence every time.
1: Ah, Whereas with my uses of Hugo, I just have a Git repo with a, I don't know, they're not sub repos with the And then there's a way to tell the repo that, Hey, the template is in this other repo. And then, you know, it's just a matter of running Hugo in the root and it compiles it. And I point my web server at the output directory.
0: Mm, Yeah. Same uh, result. So there's a, uh, the, it's basically all done in the make file. There's plenty of options there, but fairly straightforward for like adding images and depl- deployment deer. Of course, you can also have optimized images there for uh, the web.
1: Yep. And then they also uh, walk through using Rustic for incremental backups and
0: how to restore those backups. So that's a good idea. And then they have their conclusion. The conclusion reads that after you've done all the backups and it's up and running, uh, we've covered a ton of ground on this post. Uh, We've learned how to deploy your own server using Vulture. uh, Use Basti to create container-like jails. Set up Caddy to serve static file assets with TLS. Deploy the files using a fairly simple makefile and rsync backup after every deploy using RESTIC. And in the end, we have a robust, secure, and simple platform for hosting static files and services. Stay tuned for uh, there are more posts like this coming your way soon. Okay, we'll check back. And in the meantime, uh, there are other posts as well, or just try out the uh, tutorial for yourself and see uh, how it went. Cool. That's pretty straightforward and uh, not so bad as a setup. Then it's time for extending support for the NetBSD 7 branch.
1: Uh, so this is from earlier this week, or last week, I guess. Uh, and Maya Roshash, uh points out, uh, typically sometime after releasing a new FreeBS, or NetBSD major version, like uh, NetBSD 9.0, we will announce the end of life of the N-2 branch, in this case, NetBSD 7. However, we've decided to hold off on doing this to ensure our users don't feel rushed to perform major uh, version upgrades on remote machines during the pandemic. At this time, NetBSD will continue to support uh, NetBSD 7 so that people don't have to worry about trying to upgrade
0: supposed to be staying at home. So a little bit more time to breathe and uh, yeah, once we're all back in the office or getting access to our server rooms again, not uh, via SSH that is. Uh, we uh, can update to a newer branch. OK, good to have. And now we have a tale of two hypervisor bugs escaping from FreeBSD Beehive. Um, By
1: Renaud Robert. Starts with the introduction, um, but basically it's how they exploited a VGA emulation bug in Beehive and then combined that with another vulnerability to be able to escape from Beehive and get access to the host machine. So is uh, VM escapes have become a popular topic of discussion over the past few years. A good amount of research on this topic has been published for various hypervisors like VMware, QMU, VirtualBox, Xen, and Hyper-V. Beehive uh, is a hypervisor for FreeBSD supporting hardware-assisted virtualization. This paper details the exploitation of two bugs in Beehive. Uh, the first one, FreeBSDSA16.32.beehive which is a VGA emulation heap overflow, uh, and CVE 2018-17-160, which is a firmware configuration device BSS buffer overflow, and some generic techniques which could be used to exploit other beehive bugs. Further, the paper also discusses sandbox escapes using PCI device pass-through and control flow integrity bypasses for hardened BSD 12-current. So all of these bugs have been fixed for a while, like, for example, the the previous DSA for the VGA emulation uh, that the fix was released in 2016, and the other CVE is from 2018. Um, but this is a very detailed write-up on how it worked, and so it's quite interesting.
0: You don't see this uh, very often, so that this is dissected very, very uh, deep into the code and uh, with explanations to to show you how this was done back then it's fixed again um but uh yeah definitely a nice read up for more technical folks
1: yes um but it is in the end quite long uh and uh very technical so i'm not going to sit here and read it to you because uh we don't have that much time
0: (laughs) yeah yeah but if you have a rainy afternoon uh, ahead of you then maybe you want to read into this
1: uh, but yes, if you're interested in just how hypervisor escapes work or what these bugs were like, uh, it's very interesting and I recommend a read.
0: All right, it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have two overview videos for you on YouTube. The first is about GhostBSD 20.02. So that you kind of guess what, or kind of get an idea what this distribution does and what, what it looks like and what kind of features it has. And the second is uh, another overview, but this is uh, Fury BSD 12.1. And so you can, you know, if you watch them back to back, you can kind of compare them directly. Um, but it's good to see what kind of, uh, you know, again, features they have and what kind of uh, things they were built for. And I guess it gives you a better idea what they can do. And maybe you try it out after watching those videos.
1: Yeah. And um, they have a follow-up note here that some of the issues they pointed out in this Fury BSD video have all since been fixed upstream as well
0: oh even better Mm -hmm. so you can uh happily skip those and just try it out for yourself and see what your experience is Uh, then we have a more uh release kind of announcement: os 108-90 amd64 mate has been released
1: so this is a distribution of net if i remember correctly
0: uh yeah we haven't covered it, it um very often because they refer to the NetBSD guide for installation, so it must be some derivative.
1: Right, we've talked about it before. Uh, I just don't remember what uh, about it was. Yeah, it must have been a while. But I think it's basically it's a desktop distro of NetBSD, uh, and it looks very pretty.
0: Oh yeah, with the, <laughs> the screen in the background. So yeah, they got updates, and they provide, of course, the ISO image download location and checksums. And uh, how to do some after install setup. Oh, and they provided installation tutorial video as well. Uh, then uh, we're kind of having a little bit of new things here. Uh, so the first thing is that uh, PF maintainer in FreeBSD, Christoph Provost, got behind his computer and thought, well, let's try this Twitch thing and do some live coding here. And that resulted into the FreeBSD hacking, card panics and test video.
1: So have you ever wondered what it looks like when the developer develops uh, and tries to debug something uh, with all the typos and everything? Everything. It's an interesting watch.
0: Yeah, for me, it was kind of like, oh, cool. I mean, I didn't understand all of it, but it's kind of like, oh, this is the tool he's using. And Oh, I didn't know this command line. And oh, this switch is new to me. So, yeah, and the interaction is definitely there with the community and the people who logged in during the live broadcast. And so this is kind of nice that they corrected some typos <laughs> that I, that were happening. And so you can also see, oh, I did this typo and now the code doesn't compile. And, oh, why is this happening? And so, yeah, this is live. This is debugging. The one was uh, when we caught,
1: uh, Christoph had Linux on the brain and, and added like HW into an if commit command. Thinking that you had to specify that it was a hardware address or whatever.
0: <laughs> it's like looking over the shoulder of a developer. And I guess um, he will do more of those. Or if you are a BSD developer and you have another uh, a similar thing going on for a while now or just starting out, then let us know the URL and we'll uh, post it here so other people can watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know
1: Ed is planning to try to do something like that. It's still very much a work in progress, but I've been working on live.freebsd.org, which is an attempt to aggregate all these streams. Uh, Originally, it was for conferences and user groups, but I've already started a Twitch section to put individual developer things in there. Uh, And I used it the other week when we had the FreeBSD office hours back on April 1st, uh, which we basically got a bunch of developers from, you know, source, port, stocks, etc. together Uh, and opened up to take questions uh, from people. I think we had about 60 people show up. Uh, It was really interesting. And the video of that is on YouTube. And we're planning another one, uh, which will probably be yesterday when you're watching this video.
0: Yeah, so we announced those on the FreeBSD website in the upcoming events section. And so you can follow that.
1: Um, But I think the eventual idea is that we will have the website set up to actually figure out when these things start uh and we'll tweet about them and, and so on so that there'll be a you know a, a live a free bsd live bot that will note when these things start uh, but that's all still you know in the planning stages we're still trying to build it all um but yes uh we expect to see especially you know now that we're all at home having this kind of social thing like we did with the office hours was very nice and i know um you know my user group has converted to an online one for now uh since we can't meet at a restaurant
0: currently. <laughs> yeah, it's a different medium and um, the thing that Christoph does is very instructional and you could kind of ask questions and you kind of like hmm, I could do this. It's not too difficult once I see a couple of those sessions and Or the office hours thing is like, I have this bug that's really, (laughs) literally bugging me. I want to have someone look at it and actually tell me whether it's a a big problem or they can fix it or just give it attention. And so, or just ask questions like, hey, how does this all work? How... How can I become a committer or a contributor or whatever? So this is definitely made for the community and not just, uh, you know, oh, see how cool I can, you know, make these changes to the to the system. This is basically for the community and for learning and educating the people so that they become developers as well one day.
1: Yeah. And I think um, Dan from the FreeBSD Foundation is working on setting up a wiki page for the upcoming office hours so that people can start uh, maybe in their questions ahead of time so that we can have nice answers for them too.
0: Oh yeah, also good idea. So yeah, stay tuned. This is still uh, in the in the making. We're probably adjusting a couple of things here and there, but you can kind of see what kind of overall concept we're following.
1: Yeah, you know as we talked about in that first one, uh, at some point we might have 20 minutes of the hour set aside for someone to do a tutorial type thing or something. Uh, or uh, we've also talked about maybe using Mumble to have breakout groups. So that wouldn't have video or whatever, but allowing people to break into smaller groups to actually focus on, you know, a specific topic or something. And, you know, we're definitely open to any other ideas people have.
0: Yeah, it's very dynamic. It depends on the people who are there from the developer side and from the community side. And so we're kind of excited how this thing is is going and what kind of things will come out of it. And um, yeah, definitely let us know how you uh, think about this. Or if you have your own Twitch channel where you do this like two years already or so, um, then we'll be happy to um, mention this in the show.
1: Yeah, I think there's at least a couple other like port people I've seen doing Twitch once or twice. I know Steve Wills has done some stuff, although I don't know if it was actually development or if he was just using OBS on FreeBSD to stream something else. But if uh, people have stuff, I'd be willing to bake it into the live.freebsd.org thing. And eventually the idea would be that would provide people with alerts when people go live so that uh, you know if you're looking for free bsd content you'll be able to find it
0: live and can uh, interact in, in in ways like uh, asking questions or oh by the way there's there should be a comma there in this function uh, whatever it is yeah so stay tuned for more and uh, drop into the next office hour or uh, twitch stream for feedback and questions uh, we got a couple questions from people but we can always use more so if you have any questions about the BSD, the ecosystem computing in general also uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have this section not empty in the future the first one who did this is a show D with a system D question it's a one liner but nevertheless important uh, question for the show about systemd if systemd isn't used in bst can it be installed in a way where it functions well not really um
1: i think first of all it's you know it's very linux specific it's not meant to run on other operating systems and then even if it could what would it
0: do yeah it would need to have a tighter integration into the system it's not just installing a package and it all magically works it's just the question of how deep this goes I mean, what what does the current system not provide you that uh, Systemd would give you? There's a couple of features in Systemd that are compelling and a couple of developers looked at them and they were kind of like, yeah, we could adopt those, but it's not a complete drop-in replacement where you can say out with rc.d, in with Systemd. So it really uh, is not that um, BSD specific. It's built for Linux and it works on Linux. So far, so good and uh it would take a significant effort and maybe some uh rewrites or let's say i wouldn't say detours but some let's do this thing differently on the BSDs
1: my impression is that systemd is very tightly integrated with linux and it would be a lot of work to make it be able to run on freebsd and then i don't know what you'd want it to do once it did
0: there were discussions in the past about uh, changing rc.d systems with something else But at the moment we're using this, it works. It does its thing for a number of releases now, many years. And so um, some people don't have the need or don't see that the features that Systemd provides are compelling enough to switch or to make these adjustments as well in the BSDs. Could all change in the future, of course, um, but it always takes um, someone who drives this, who architects this, who designs this, who implements this, Uh, so that people can play with it and adopt it eventually. But definitely, uh, thanks for that question. And uh, yeah, if people want to chime in or have some other um, comments about this, then definitely let us know. Uh, The next one is Ben with a question about Gally and uh, ZFS, or GPT as well. Uh, Goes like this. Uh, Dear Alan, Benedict, and JT, thanks for the nice podcasts. You're welcome. I find a lot of interesting things on BSDNOW.TV. I have some questions for you. Sure. I have a laptop uh, with one SSD. I have installed FreeBSD 12.1 with ZFS and Galley. These days, I decided to move the installation to a bigger SSD. My first thought was to copy the data with DD, but I have heard that encrypted disks do not do well with DD. I tried cloning the disk with a disk duplicator and Oreco external SATA to USB docking station, but with no success. On reboot I get GPZ ZFS boot, no ZFS pools located, can't boot. Mm. I searched the net for any solution uh, to this, but all proposed I could uh, find to repair with gpart to enable the galley partition with Gelly configure dash g i did not it did not help do you have any idea how to quickly clone an ssd with zfs and Gelly? cloning with dd
1: should work it's the resizing that'll be a bit touchy but that's, af- that's separate from the cloning so when you if you just dd the whole drive to the new disk it should still work uh, and it's just when you do the gpart resize you have to do a Gelly resize so the Gelly metadata moves back to the correct location at the end of the partition but if you just dd'd the whole disk the partition would still be smaller the size of the original disk and so it would still be in the right place your other option obviously is to you know connect the second disk with that external sat at a usb docking station uh, and you know create a new pool on it uh, and ZFS send from the first disk and receive to the second disk. Uh, and then, you know,
0: duplicated the data that way. Yeah, so this should work. Seems like that's what they tried in the next question. So mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, second goes, uh, I tried to ZFS send se- slash ZFS receive the whole data from the source SSD to another machine or have enough storage with ZFS send and receive. On the receiving side, I wanted to have the data in certain data sets, like zroot slash temp slash from underscore SSD, but I had a problem. On the sending side, the pool is named zroot, and on the receiving side, it is the same. Uh, On the receiving side, it asked to replace the existing data sets. Where did I go wrong? Ah,
1: so in this one, they were doing zfs receive to zroot slash temp slash from underscore SSD. And it was asking, do you want to replace that from underscore SSD data set with this zroot dataset, Likely, all you want to do is, when you do a ZFS receive for a not incremental, you want to indicate a dataset that doesn't exist yet. Uh, so in the ZFS receive command, you would have done zroot slash temp slash from underscore ssd slash zroot, which doesn't exist yet. And then you wouldn't have got that error. Isn't there also an option to strip out the pool name or something
0: in, this, in the receive or something?
1: There is a way to do that as well. And then that would end up with you know zroot slash temp slash from underscore ssd slash whatever your data set was called without the pool name included. Uh, yes, there is also an option for that. Although, again, in this case, that wouldn't help because the from underscore ssd is this empty data set you created uh, and is asking, do you want me to overwrite it? And uh, I can understand why you got scared thinking it was going to overwrite the entire zpool, but it was only talking about overwriting the from underscore ssd data set because it exists. Ah, So in your ZFS receive command, when doing a full receive, you want to indicate a data set that doesn't exist yet and it will
0: create. Yeah, and that should not be uh, giving you scary messages. Okay, third question or proposal. Uh, One proposal for the podcast. Can you please invite more BSD developers to tell their story, how they started with BSD, and possibly to give advice how to start coding with BSD or different coding languages? Uh, I hope it will influence younger people to start using and contribute to BSDs. Yeah, so uh, we tried um, scheduling interviews. We just do double episodes in the last couple of months that made scheduling a bit difficult. But we definitely try to get back to people and, uh, hey, you haven't been on the show for a while or you haven't been on the show at all. And just drag them before a microphone. And before they know, we hit record and we ask questions. We'd like to do more
1: as well. Uh, scheduling is a bit difficult but working on it
0: luckily with the situation nowadays a lot of people have video cameras and recording equipment at home Uh, (laughs) so that might make things a bit easier so we're working on this and we'll try to hunt down a couple more people because we also want to hear their stories and their uh what they're working on at the moment or um you know how they got started with the bsds this is our uh in our always our first question we ask So yeah, thanks for that feedback and hope you got your uh, pools uh, copied uh, after this and uh, you can continue on the new uh, disk. All right. And then we have stick with a do-it-yourself NAS question or uh, well input Uh, goes like the following. Hello, BSD now. Thanks for the show. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I have been with you from the start and really enjoy my weekly dose of BSD rated news. Yeah, see, you cannot get it without it. That's how I how I started. And yeah, see where it got me. Um, <laughs> okay, thanks for enjoying that and the feedback. Um, I have a question. Besides buying a free NAS Mini, do you have some recommendations for a do-it-yourself NAS solution? Hardware-wise, should there be a combination of SSD and NAS drives being involved? Uh, software-wise, I know ZFS might be the way to go, but would NetBSD or Dragonfly be an option?
1: So hardware-wise... The Freenas forums uh, have some pretty good stickied posts about picking the right hardware, including you know the the non RAID HBAs you can get cheapest off eBay and reflash to be the right kind and so on. The IT mode, yeah, to get the the regular initiator mode, not RAID mode, um, and that kind of stuff, and also you know lots of discussion. Um, also, uh, Serve the Home dot com is a forum for people with home labs and stuff. Always has. Uh, you know, any deals anybody finds on, you know, these particular hard drives are the best cost per gigabyte right now and are reliable or whatever. Um, so your question of mixing SSDs and NAS drives, that will depend a little bit. You have to run FreeBSD current, I think, in order to get the new, uh, special VDEVs feature that lets you put the metadata on dedicated SSDs and the regular data on hard drives, uh, to actually try to get some value out of that, um. Short of using SSDs only as a cache, for that configuration you need at least mirrored SSDs. Obviously, because you know if one SSD dies and there goes half your metadata, the rest having the data isn't very useful if you can't figure out which file the data is for. But yes, so a mix of SSD and NAS drives can be useful. Although, unless you're using very cutting edge versions of ZFS, uh, it can be a little harder to take advantage of those. Depending on your use case, you might not want to build for that feature yet. Like you might buy a chassis that can hold a bunch of SSDs, but maybe don't buy the SSDs until you can actually use them because you'll get a lot more SSD for the same money by the time that happens. Yeah. Uh, Software-wise, I prefer vanilla FreeBSD, but you can use FreeNAS or whatever. Um, NetBSD is starting to have ZFS support, so it might be an option. Dragonfly. You could try Hammer. I've not done that, so I don't know. But for a NAS, I really feel that FreeBSD is the best answer.
0: Think a little bit about, uh, you know, extensibility. Start small, but uh, don't limit yourself from the beginning by just having two drive bays or something. But as Alan said, uh, don't buy the whole thing right now or with the latest stuff. Let it grow over time and then extend it when needed. And then you have different options, cheaper prices, and um, the NAS grows with you. And you... At the beginning, if you're not putting some productive data on it, you can just try out different distributions and do some maybe ZFS send and receives. So that way you get into the whole, how would this work later on when I have it in full production mode. And then once you have enough experience with it, then put the real data on it and then run with that. Okay, I hope that gave you some pointers. And uh, yeah, good luck with your NAS setup. And so this is uh, the wrap-up of our episode. Uh, Thank you for listening again. We'll be back uh, next week, of course, with another episode with fresh BSD content. Uh, Stay safe, stay home a little bit longer. We'll uh, be over the little bump here. Not in our bellies, but uh, Uh flatten the curve is a thing. And so uh, we'll be back and listening uh, next week. All right. See you next week.